Welcome, friends, guests, and visitors. It's a joy to be back together again this evening, uh, worshiping our Lord. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 47, 1 through 5. O clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. He shall choose our inheritance for us, the excellency of Jacob, whom he loved, Selah. God is gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Our scripture reading this evening comes from Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. Hear ye the word of our Lord. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye are also called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. 
Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. As we've learned from previous chapters and verses in in Colossians, Uh, The Colossian Christians are being told by false teachers that uh, they need to adhere, they need to follow what we recognize as the rules and doctrines of men. They are being told that they must adhere to Old Testament laws and additional man-made rules in order to be regarded as faithful believers. They are being told that Christ is not enough, that they need to observe and obey an array of laws, an array of rules, and they need to celebrate uh, certain holy days. They are being told that they must meet a series of conditions in order for them to be included as the people of God. Having to meet religious conditions, to be acknowledged as a child of God, can be looked at as being kind of similar to getting a mortgage to purchase a home. Before you can borrow money from a bank and become a homeowner, there are a bunch of conditions that need to be met in order for you to do so. First of all, you must have a a good credit history. That means you've faithfully borrowed money in the past and you've always paid it back. You must have a, a down payment on the house. You have to have saved some money. Usually a minimum is around 10% of the total value of the home to put as a, a down payment. And one of the other conditions is you must make enough money so that you're able to pay your mortgage bill and the rest of your bills at the end of the month. Now the bank looks at, at all of this. They look at the criteria, these They look at how much money you make, how much money you've saved. They look at what your credit history is. And they decide, do you meet the criteria? Do you meet the conditions to purchase a home? Well, these false teachers in Colossae, they're kind of acting a little bit like a bank that gives out mortgages. They're setting up a series of conditions that they said were necessary in order for one to become part of the faith. They said it was necessary that you be circumcised. It was necessary that you observe the Old Testament ritual laws and these other laws 
that you faithfully celebrate a series of special and holy days. And if you met these conditions, the false teachers were willing to consider that you were worthy to be part of their religion. Well, thankfully, our Lord doesn't set up conditions for us to accomplish in order for us to be saved. The Lord saves us not based on our merit. He doesn't save us based on our works, but based upon the work and sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What the Lord does require He does himself in our hearts. He requires a changed heart. He requires that we be born again, that we believe in him by faith, and he does this in our hearts. Salvation and favor with God are completely free. If there was a credit report, we would miserably fail it. We have no down payment to give. We have no monthly payment to offer. But yet, because of Jesus Christ, we receive a mansion in heaven. Christ is the one who pays for our salvation. He's the one who has the perfect credit report. He's the one who purchases salvation. And the mansion in glory for his people. And so what is Paul doing with these Colossians? He's telling them not to follow these rules of men. These made up rules. These these laws that Christ has accomplished. But he's telling them. He's redirecting their attention to Jesus Christ himself. And as we look at Colossians, this is a a Christ-filled book. This is what Paul is doing throughout this book. He's urging these Colossians to, to focus on Jesus Christ and even to see who they are themselves in Christ Jesus. He's urging them to live also a new life. To put aside the things of the past. To put aside the things of the old man. And to start living a new life. And this is the title of our sermon this evening. Living the new life. And our first point is raised to a new life. Our second is putting off an old life. And a third point is putting on the new life. Paul begins chapter 3 by By writing these words, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now if you look through Colossians, you'll see he said similar things before. In chapter 2 verse 6 he says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving. He also says in chapter 2, verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, 
Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? What Paul's doing here is he's urging the Colossians forward. He's urging them to go forward in following the Lord Lord Jesus Christ, Christ. If this is true for you, go forward by faith. If you are a child of God, go forward by faith. If you are in Christ, why are you still focused on these earthly things? He argues that if they are in Christ, if they are Christians, then they must be following Jesus. They must walk in him, growing in faith, growing in knowledge, growing in thanksgiving. They must cast aside the former laws and ordinances And they must follow Christ by faith, growing in grace, knowledge, and thanksgiving. And here he plainly tells them that if they have been raised with Christ, they must seek the things that are above. And when Paul says, if you have been raised in Christ... In the original, it's actually, he's not questioning whether they're they're Christians or not. He's just setting up his sentence here. He's using this grammatical format to urge these believers to seek the things that are above. Paul is telling them that the fact that they have been raised with Christ means that they naturally must seek those things that are above. As we look at what Paul is saying here, we're actually looking at a profound mystery. A mystery that he's he's looked at already, that he's he's mentioned already. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul speaks about the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he speaks out the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of of wisdom and knowledge. But as we get into chapter 3, there's another mystery that's being unfolded up for us here. And this is the mystery of the Christian's union, their unity with Jesus Christ. This mystery is Jesus Christ and his union with his people. This isn't a mystery in the sense of that we we normally think of a mystery. It isn't something that we don't know anything about. It's not a mystery that we can't begin to understand and therefore shrug our shoulders and don't even attempt to understand it. No, this mystery is plain. But yet it's so profound that it will take us all of eternity to understand it. Now, some of you young people have, have been to an escape room. There, were, there was an escape caboose at, at, at youth camp. And for those of you who don't know what this is, uh, you pay money to be locked in a room, and you get a certain amount of time to solve all these puzzles and, and these mysteries and attempt to find your way out in that amount of time. It's a mystery how to get out of the room. No one knows where the final key is. No one knows 
what the final maybe lock combination is that's going to get you out of the room. Now, the difference with that sort of mystery and the mystery of union with Christ, the mystery of Christ himself, is that in this much more profound mystery that we're speaking about tonight, the final solution is revealed to us. Christ is the key to salvation and our escape from sin. However, all the details of what happens and and how it happens, even though some of them are plain, Yet in another sense, they are such a mystery to us. They are stated plainly to us and to be able to understand, but it can be so hard for our finite minds to completely comprehend, especially the mystery of our union with Christ. Paul tells us the mystery that we are risen with Christ. As Christ rose from the dead, as he came to life again, so we are raised with him to new life. Paul hints at even something deeper. He says, for ye are dead, and, in your, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We are dead. Our old man has died with Christ. Our old nature is in the grave going through its final death spasms. And I know we don't always feel feel this. Our old man sometimes seems to be so strong, sometimes seems to be so much in control, And we lament our remaining sin. We lament that we look so little like Christ. That our hearts are so far from him. Yet this text reveals a reality for us. A reality that is is maybe hard for us to believe. But a reality that spurs us on as believers in our journey to eternity. Paul reveals here the truth. He reveals the truth about our state as a child of God. He reveals who we are in Christ and that we are progressing to a point where the truth of what he says will be totally unveiled for us. Paul is making use of, and I'm sure some of you have heard of this, of what's called the already not yet. He's illustrating for us what already is true with Christ, but yet not, has not yet come to full fruition. He's illustrating for us the glorious truth of our, our union with Christ. In Christ, our old man is dead. He's in the grave. This is true. We may not feel it, but because Christ has accomplished it, because he has promised it, it is as if it is already true. And even though we don't see its complete fulfillment yet, yet we're called to believe 
what the Lord is telling us here in his word. And to believe it as if it's already happened. Paul tells us in this verse, your lives are hid with Christ in God. This communicates two valuable truths to us. First, you are safe in Christ. He has paid the price for your sin. He has lived a perfect life for you. You are united with him and nothing will separate you from him. He will keep you and you will uh, persevere to the end. You are safe and hidden in him. Secondly, being hidden in Christ is another way of saying that we are, you are united with him. Our lives are so intimately tied and united to Christ that it is as if we are hidden in him. We are encompassed in him. We are tied together with him in his death, in his resurrection, and, and even in his dwelling at the right hand of the Father. He is the head of the church. We are the body of the church. This is how close our unity as believers is with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been raised to new life in him. We're united with him. We are one with Christ and have perfect unity with him. And because of our union, not only are we raised with him, but we have also ascended with him into glory. Since Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, we, his body, are already there with him. And the day will come when we in our resurrected bodies will appear with him there. Now this is a mystery. And it's because of this profound truth, it's because of this mystery that Paul tells us to set our mind, to set our heart on things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's telling us here to orient our lives around Christ and the profound truths that he gives us. We are to seek the things that are above, that originate from Christ himself, that come from the throne of God. We are to seek these things from above because they change us. They reorient our life and they bring profound meaning into our lives. And if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit, this is what he does. He teaches you things from above. He teaches us the knowledge of God's will. He gives us all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So that we would walk worthy of the Lord and be strengthened with his might. When the Lord works in our hearts, when he gives us this, this new life, the Spirit works in us. 
So that we no longer wander about seeking to serve ourselves and searching for meaningful meaning and purpose because now the ultimate meaning of the universe, in the universe, is in our lives. And we are connected to him with an unbreakable bond. I know some of these things that I'm saying may be hard to believe. But this is what the Lord says is true for his people. And the Lord reveals these things to us, yes, for our comfort. He tells us these things for our comfort. But he also does it for the reason, as Paul is outlining here, if this is true for you, and it is if you're a child of God, he tells us these things to stir us up, to do what comes naturally to those who are united with Christ. And what is that? Well, we need to set our minds on Christ. We need to have the mind of Christ. We need to be filled with Christ. We need to orient our lives to be like, so that we are like Christ. This begins with the putting off of our old life, the putting to death of our Old man, as Paul argues here, that since you have been saved by Christ, since you have been raised from death to life by him, it's no longer natural for you to be bound to the things of the earth. And now when we read things of the earth, we, we might be tempted to think negatively about the regular things of life. The material world, our employment, our relationships, our hobbies, our, our houses, or, or our possessions. But this isn't necessarily what Paul is referring to here. Of course, if these things are our God, if we're living our life for these things, if they're the purpose of our lives and they're causing us to sin, they need to be eliminated or reprioritized. But a mind and a heart that is oriented to things above, a mind and a heart that is centered in Christ, does not necessarily need to cancel these things out, but only to rightly align them under the sphere of God's kingdom. What Paul is principally speaking about here is sin. Worldly thinking. Wrong ideas and beliefs, practices that don't align with Christ and are in opposition to things above. He's speaking about man-made religion. He's speaking about secularism, legalism, wickedness, idolatry, things that are truly earthy and of an earthly disobedient mind. We are to orient our minds on things above Not so that we walk around with our heads in the clouds. But so that these profound truths and mysteries that the Lord reveals to us. Affect every part of our lives here below. We need to be living living here now according to the heavenly truths that we know to be true. We need to be living as if Christ is our life. 
We need to be living in the reality that our life is tied together with Christ's. We need to have this mystery in mind. The mystery of our uh, unity with Christ. It needs to be in our hearts. It needs to shape us and mold us. We're just beginning to comprehend it. Comprehend it. But the day is coming when we will see this unity demonstrated. The day is coming when we will see it it in front of, demonstrated when we appear with our Savior and are united with Him in glory. So again, to break down Paul's argument here, he's saying that since this union with Christ is a reality, since these things that we don't see the full reality of are already true, we must go forward by faith putting to death the things of the earth that are in us. We must put all those things away that are contrary to the things above. We must stop living with an earthly mind, a mind and heart that lives according to the principles of worldliness and live according to the principles of Christ. I'm sure you've heard Christians say, this is not my home, referring to here and now. My home is in heaven. I've said this in the past, and when I hear it being said, I understand what what they're trying to say. And it's true, our eternal home is our forever home. It's in the new heavens and the and the new earth, yet... This expression, my home, this here is not my home, my home is in heaven, can be misunderstood or misapplied to our temporary home here. Some Christians use this saying, and maybe they even look at the passage tonight that's referring to earthly things, and they use it to say this world doesn't matter at all. They might look at the things in this world, their home, their family, their possessions, their money, their job, and they might dismiss them saying, these don't really matter because in the end, they're all going to burn. But when Paul is speaking about earthly things here, this isn't what Paul is saying. Paul isn't showing us that the material things of this world, our family, friends, and vocations have no importance or they must not be part of our lives. But he's saying that sin must not be part of our lives. We must no longer be subject to sin and worldliness. Look at the list he gives us here. These are the things... That need to be eliminated from our lives. This list is a list of earthly things. Of worldly things. Of sinful things. Paul says in verse 5. Mortify or put to death therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness. Which is idolatry. This first list of of vices, his first list of sins, describe actually who the sinner is in himself. 
The five sins mentioned here, actually, they move in order. They move from the surface level to the heart. The root of the sins mentioned here is idolatry. And the root of idolatry is is the worship of self. And when we are worshiping ourselves and only living for ourselves, this leads to covetousness. This leads to greed. And ultimately in this list, it leads to sexual perversion and immorality. Paul starts with the heart, moves to the desires, and then shows the desires manifesting themselves here in this list into actions. These are earthly things. These have, these sins have no part or should have no part in the life of a Christian. In the life of one who has been bought by Christ, who is risen with Christ, and who, and when, and the Holy Spirit lives in him. These sins and the Christian are opposite to each other. They do not belong together. In fact, God's wrath is coming upon those whose minds and hearts are bound to these sins. Paul's making very clear here that the Christian and sin have no part together. We ought not to walk the way we once walked. And this includes the thing that Paul, the things that Paul mentions in the second list as well. And this list is more about how we treat those around us. Paul calls us, or the Lord calls us, to put to death, to lay aside anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, and lying to one another. Again, this, this gets at the heart where all sins originate. The list begins with, with anger. Anger begins within. It can be hidden. But it simmers there. It festers there until wrath or rage is displayed. And after we act out our anger, we do so in an outward way by malicious acts of revenge or, or wicked acts against the person we hate. And of course, if we hate someone, we then slander or blaspheme this person, heaving abusive and filthy insults upon them. All of these have no part in the Christian life. We are new creatures who have put off the old man and his practices. Notice that Paul says exactly that. He says, do none of these things seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Again, here we have the already not yet concept displayed for us again. Paul doesn't say here, seeing that ye are putting off the old man. He doesn't say that seeing that you will put off the old man, but he says, seeing that you have put off the old man with all of his practices. 
What Paul is arguing, what he's saying, if this is already the truth about God's people, if this is already the reality, what right do you have to continue in sin? If it is true that the old man has been put off, there is no reason for you to continue to sin. You are a new creature in Christ. Your state has been transferred from sinner to saint, from dead to alive, from slavery to freedom. Perhaps you've heard someone say something, maybe you did something wrong in the past, and someone said to you, come on, you're better than that. In some sense, this is true for the Christian who sins. Not better in themselves, but better in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a new identity. And you have no business sinning. I read a story that kind of highlights this. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's... It, uh, it's, it's a great illustration. There was a thief who, he, he went to jail because he lived a life of thievery. He was constantly stealing. And while he was in prison, he was converted and he became a Christian. Uh, um, after some time in jail, he was released. He got a job and he started attending a, a faithful church. But he had this enormous fear in his life. He was so scared that he was going to start stealing again. He was scared that he'd, he'd, he'd be found out to be a fake, not really a Christian, a hypocrite, and he would end up in jail. One Sunday while he was in church, he heard the minister reading the Ten Commandments like he did every Lord's Day. And he heard the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. But instead of hearing it thundering down upon him, Thou shalt not steal, you shall not steal, he heard it as a promise. You shall not steal. You shall no longer steal. This was the end of his fear. The end of his fear that he would fall into a life of stealing again, not because he was confident in himself, but because he realized who he was now in Christ. That it was no longer an option for him to steal. It was no longer acceptable. It was no longer something that he, a born-again child of God, could do. It was completely foreign to who he was in Christ. Well, this is exactly true for who we are in Christ. Sinning is completely foreign to our nature. And we should have no part of it. It's not who we are. But you may say... You may see some of this reflected in you in your life. 
But I think we can all admit that there still is so much remaining sin in us. There's still so much sanctifying work that yet needs to be done. The old man is defeated, but he's still battling for his life. So how can what I'm saying about who you are be true? Oh, we struggle. I struggle to understand this mystery of our state in Christ. Especially when I'm confronted with my own remaining condition. A condition that doesn't match the glorious reality of our state in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord comes to us and he, he shows this in us. Shows us the already not yet in his word. He comes to us here in his, his, in his word to, to comfort us with these things, but also to exhort us to not be complacent in our sin. To not think the remaining sin in our lives is okay and acceptable, but to exhort us to cast it aside. That through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would reorient our lives so that they match up to who we are in Christ. He comes to us and reveals to us this mystery. Not so that we'd become presumptive, not so that we'd become complacent and lazy in our lives. But to stir us up so that we would live out our new identity By faith in him. He tells us what he has done for us. And who he has made us to be. So that out of thankfulness we cast out the old man. So that out of thankfulness we flee from sin. And only follow him. And the Lord here doesn't only tell us to put off sin, but he also tells us to put on righteousness, to put on a new life. There is no neutrality in the Christian life. You are either a hater or lover of God. You are either a Christian or an unbeliever. You are either a sinner or a saint. There is no in-between. And also, when it comes to putting off the old man, we cannot put off the old man without putting on the new man. There is no in-between. There is no void to exist in. When we put off sin, it must be replaced with righteousness. There's no neutrality, no vacuum that exists between sin and righteousness. There's no place where we can exist between these two. This is why Paul tells the Colossians that as well as putting sin to death, they also need to put on the new man. They need to put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And here Paul is drawing the connection between the Christian 
and his union with Christ. We need to put on the new man, the new man which is being renewed in the image of Christ. We are being shaped, molded by the Holy Spirit to be like Christ Jesus. This is already accomplished in Christ, but it needs to be worked out in our lives. As Paul says here, we need to put on a heart of compassion. King James, it says, bowels of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And Paul continues by saying, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We see here Paul prioritizing love in this list. It's, it's the central virtue underlying the rest of the virtues. It is the love of Christ in us that makes us possible, that makes it possible for these things to become a reality in our lives. It's the love of Christ worked in us that makes it possible for us to love our enemy, to have compassion on our neighbor. It is the love of Christ in us that causes us to humble ourselves and to forgive those who have sinned against us. It is the love of Christ in us that causes us to be patient with others. To bear another's burden with them. Christ's love humbles us. When our eyes are open to his incredible love for us. When we see what he has done for us and what he is still doing for us. When we see what he has done in our sinful hearts, his love transforms us so that we now love him and we love our neighbor. This is not a change that we can manufacture on our own. We can try with all of our might to love our enemies, but the best we'll ever be able to manage is to maybe change our outward demeanor and Our actions, our heart will remain the same. It is only the Lord and His love that transforms our hearts. It is only the Lord who gives us new hearts, hearts of compassion, hearts of kindness, hearts of humility, meekness, and graciousness. Paul, speaking of this love here, says that this love is the bond of perfection. It is the tie that binds all believers together, causing them to move forward together towards perfection. It's a bond. Love ties Christians together. The love of Christ ties them together. The love of Christ and righteousness and his righteousness is the perfect uniter. And the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the true message of peace and unity. And Paul, or I'm sorry, Christ gives us the gospel, gives 
gives the gospel to us to unite us to him and to each other. We see Paul affirming this here in our text. Paul speaks about the Greek. Neither There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is in all. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a respecter of persons. His message, his grace, his forgiveness is for all people. Even the Scythians. A barbarous people. They were, they were these, these horse soldiers who, who carried out excessive brutality against all those they conquered. And here in this list, they're, they're specifically mentioned by Paul. Christ even gives people such as them the gospel. He saves even them and puts love and peace in their hearts. We live in a world that is becoming more and more divided. More and more lines of division are being drawn. It seems like the rhetoric, the hatred, conflict are only increasing. It seems like everyone says that we want unity and peace, but we seem seems like we're going head-on towards hatred and maybe even war. There is only one solution for true unity. There is only one solution for true peace, and that is found in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Christ brings peace into our hearts He unites believers together through his love. And though we won't see it perfectly displayed, this side of glory, it is the only hope that we have as fallen human beings, Jesus Christ himself. And it is only his love, his gospel, that unites us. A day will come and the lion will lie down with the lamb when wars will cease, when the Lord will bring justice for all and whatever is wrong will be made right and, that, and there will be peace forever. But right now what our world needs, our fighting world, we need the gospel. We need the gospel to go out, the gospel that you can that unites Jew and Gentile, that can unite Palestinian and Jew, the gospel that can unite the Russian and the Ukrainian, the liberal and the conservative. So let's pray that the gospel impacts our hearts, that it brings peace to our hearts, unites our hearts with our neighbors, gives us thankfulness for what Christ has done in our lives. And let's go forward by faith. It is because of this gospel. It's because of the Father's eternal love 
that we are saved, that we are united with the Son. And it's because of the Son's sacrificial love that His Holy Spirit dwells within us, that He applies the love of Christ to us, transforming our lives so that we become more and more like Him. And the challenge for us tonight is, though we can attribute nothing to our salvation, though we can claim nothing based on our own action or effort, yet we were not passive in our salvation. And neither are we passive in the putting off and putting on of righteousness. Yes, we cannot change our hearts. We cannot make ourselves holy. But we can go forward by faith, trusting that as we follow our Savior that He is working in us. He is changing us and shaping us to be like him. We can discipline our lives, resisting temptation, guarding and examining our hearts. We can make use of the means of grace. As Paul says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. We can fill our minds and hearts with good things. With the word of God. And it is primarily the word that the Lord uses to transform us. To communicate the gospel to us. To tell us of the Lord Jesus Christ's amazing love for us. And we can make use of the word of God. Not only so that it transforms us but also to encourage and admonish one another, whether it be through the reading of the word or through preaching, or as our text says here, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So as we go out this evening into a new week, remember who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't be proud about it. It's humbling. It should be extremely humbling. But seek to follow the Lord. Putting off the old man. Putting off sin. You have no right to keep sinning. And put on the new man. And go forward by faith. Believing and trusting what the Lord says in his word. Praying and seeking to live your life for his honor and for his glory. Go forward by faith. In the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ. Striving to do all in his name. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Why? Because you're able to... Manufacture your own holiness? No. For he is faithful that promised. Amen. Our merciful and gracious God, the more we search thy word, the more Thou dost reveal the truths of thy word to us, the more we are astounded at thy unbelievable goodness. 
We dare not say the things about ourselves that thou dost reveal to us in thy word. And yet thou dost command thy people to believe it by faith. To walk forward in it by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that thou would transform our hearts and help us to live for thy honor and for thy glory. Helping us to love thee with all of our heart. The old man, all of him, would be put out of our heart. And that true righteousness, true love for thee and love for our neighbor would be what comes out of our minds, comes out of our heart, out of our mouth, is revealed in all of our actions. And that all of this, all of our lives, would be lived for thee. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.